Hello everyone, welcome to the Sons of Antiquity podcast. I'm your host Evan, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host Dan. Hello everyone. Today's episode is all about The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli. As you probably noticed, we've got a brand new intro and we've got a new format to go along with it. We're cutting out a lot of the fluff in the episode, so it'll be shorter than normal. Let us know how you like it in the comments. Machiavelli wrote, A prince must not have any other object, nor any other thought, but war, its institutions, and its discipline, because that is the only art befitting one who commands. The prince is essentially a how-to manual on acquiring and maintaining power, which uses history, and by history we mean of antiquity and of Machiavelli's own era in Renaissance Italy, to teach the do's and don'ts of ruling over men. Let's dive right into a summary. So starting off with the preface, uh, Machiavelli dedicated the work to a man named Lorenzo de' Medici, a wealthy and influential Italian aristocrat who Machiavelli hoped would benefit from the book. So as not to bore him with a fancy long-winded style, he explained that the text was intentionally written in a plain style and in Italian rather than Latin. Chapter 1. All states are monarchies or republics. Monarchies are hereditary, newly formed, or acquired by other monarchs. Chapter 2. Hereditary monarchies are easy to maintain, but newly formed ones have difficulty maintaining power. Then in chapter 3, Machiavelli writes, Men willingly change their lords in the belief that they will fare better. This belief makes them take up arms against him, in which they are deceived, because they see later by experience that they have done worse. New monarchies are bound to offend their subjects. Rulers cannot maintain their position when the people hate them, because the people will side with rivals as soon as they have the opportunity. Machiavelli goes on to explain that kings who share the same nationality and language with the people are better able to secure their positions, especially if the people are not used to freedom. You should eliminate former monarchical families once you take over. Don't change things too quickly either, especially when it comes to laws and taxes. The people are very sensitive about that. Take residence in your newly acquired territory and plant colonies in key cities. To each person, be either fully kind or harsh. Small injuries can be avenged, and don't quarter troops there because they are expensive and cause offense to the local people. The new king should defend smaller neighbors and weaken the stronger neighbors. Try to get invited to intervene in neighbors' affairs. The poor will love you if you attack the rich. Guard against present and future discords, and whoever causes another to be more powerful ruins himself. Chapter 4 Alexander the Great held Darius's territories easily because Persia had been governed by a monarch through his servants, rather than through barons which do not depend on the favor of the king. The kingdom of France had ancient barons, or what we call nobles, which operated independently of the king. Kingdoms with servants are hard to conquer but easy to maintain, because once the difficulty of overthrowing the king and his loyal servants is done, the locals will only be beholden to you. By contrast, kingdoms with barons are easy to conquer but hard to maintain, because the barons can be bought off or befriended, giving you a way in. But winning over the locals who owed allegiance to their trusted barons, who are now gone or dead, will be tough. Machiavelli then points out that the Persians were united and could not be divided by outsiders. And he mentions that territories with numerous principalities rebel often, as in France, Spain, and Greece in the Roman Empire. Now on to chapter 5. To acquire territories that are used to living under their own laws, there are three ways. One, despoil them. Two, live there. Or three, allow them to live under their own laws, 
make them pay tribute to you, and select friendly people as their leaders. One and two are surefire ways. Republics contain more hateful and vengeful people than monarchies. As the book says, quote, And whoever becomes patron of a city accustomed to living free and does not destroy it should expect to be destroyed by it. For it always has as a refuge in rebellion the name of liberty and its own ancient orders, which are never forgotten either through length of time or because of benefits received. Whatever one does or provides for, unless the inhabitants are broken up or dispersed, they will not forget that name and those orders. Chapter 6. It is best to aim high so that even if you don't attain your full ambition, you will still do a lot. Good advice in general. A private individual becoming a prince requires great ability or great fortune. Those who rely less on good fortune do better. Moses, Cyrus, Theseus, and Romulus were some of the best princes. They only required an opportunity to be elevated, then took the rest with their abilities. Those with great abilities become new princes with great difficulty, but retain them easily. There is nothing more difficult to carry out than establishing a new order of things. Reformers must deal with enemies who profited by the old order and lukewarm supporters of the new. Thus, armed prophets succeed and unarmed prophets fail. I will mention that throughout the book, whenever he'll mention some religious figures like Moses and David, and he does, he does not include any kind of divine intervention in the reason for their success. He just explains it through purely academic historical means. Right? Yeah, and he does this even more in discourses on Livy. Um, he says, well, Moses was powerful because he did this and that, and God is left completely out of the picture. Hmm. So that gives you kind of an image of what this guy is trying to advocate. Ah, so you don't believe he was trying to push any kind of religious agenda whatsoever? I think he was pretty secular. Mm. Especially for his day, he was very secular. And that might tie into some later questions about whether or not it was a critique or not, a maybe a, a parody of sorts. Who knows? We'll see. We'll get into that later. Chapter 7. Those with good fortune become new princes with ease, but retain their status with difficulty. Their success is built on the favor of others, and only geniuses can salvage their position here. Then in chapter 8, he says, some become princes by villainy, and this is my preferred method. It's much more interesting. Machiavelli gives an example of a wicked Sicilian named Agathocles, who tricked all the senators and wealthy citizens to come to a meeting, then had them killed, allowing him to become king of Syracuse. He was successful and powerful, but lacked glory and virtue. Another Italian man named Liberato de Fermo invited his uncle and other powerful people to a dinner party and massacred them all, gaining control of the region, though only for a year before he was ultimately strangled to death. Going back to the book, quote, Hence it should be noted that in taking hold of a state, he who seizes it should review all the offenses necessary for him to commit and do them all at a stroke so as not to have to renew them every day, and by not renewing them, to secure men and gain them to himself with benefits. So if you got to get your hands dirty, go ahead and just get it all out of the way. That way, nobody is constantly reminded of how much of a tyrant you are. And this differs a lot from uh, Sola came to mind, who had the prescriptions, which means your name gets put on a list, and then anyone can kill you legally. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was so cool when he did that. Yeah. <laughs> And he started out with a small list, just like the top supporters of uh, the previous, what was it, Marius? Uh, yes, it was the guys Marius supporters, I believe. Yeah. So he just eliminated a few, but every day the list got added to. 
and it's that's not the way to do it in Machiavelli's opinion. It's he thinks he should have just put everyone he needed to kill on the list at first, have it done with, and then move on. Because otherwise, everyone's just scared they're going to be put on the list the next day. Exactly, and it and it stretched out for days and days and days of just weeks. Oh, months. Was, there you go. It was just a a madhouse in Rome, and that's no way to to take hold of a of a government you know it makes everyone you, paranoid and not wanting you in charge because they think they may be next exactly you want something that's more stable and you, you don't want to leave a, a bad taste in their mouth and a bad reputation and then in chapter nine quote when a private citizen lays his foundation on them meaning the people and allows himself to think that the people will liberate him if he is oppressed by enemies or by the magistrates in this case one can often be deceived like the gracchi in rome end quote Two opposite groups, nobility and commoners, exist in every city. This has three possible results. Monarchy, from either group, liberty, or license. If it's monarchy, a prince will have better luck if he is elevated by the commoners. The nobility is harder to control and more treacherous. Make the nobles dependent on you, else leave them alone. All the people want is to not be oppressed. If you are elevated by nobles, still seek the favor of the people. If a man goes from civic ruler to prince, he is in a dangerous position. Make the people reliant on you as their prince. And I will say, uh, I don't. I th- I think this has changed in recent history that the people don't just want to be left alone. I think people want a little more than that. They're bread and circuses. They do, especially in modern day America. No one ever wants to give up their you know spending programs. No one ever wants to give up this or that or the other. The last thing anyone wants is like no government or a government not to do much. Yeah, because most people can't actually do things for themselves. They're not self-reliant or self-sufficient. So that would actually leave them at a disadvantage. So of course they want the nanny state. Chapter 10. A prince should fortify his town if he is unable to get an army which could defeat enemies. The Holy Roman Empire, Germany, is so split up because nobody wants to attack fortified towns. Princes should keep stores for a year and keep the commoners employed if needed. Rest in peace. <laughs> Rest in peace to the Holy Roman Empire? Yeah. It lasted till the early 1800s. And what was it that brought him down? Napoleon. Mm, yes. We should do an episode on Napoleon. Maybe. A little we'll teaser see. there. <laughs> Chapter 11. Princes who were in the religious hierarchy. And when he said this, he had in mind the papal states. They have it the easiest. People are naturally friendly to them and do not challenge the authority of the prince. Before Pope Alexander VI... The papal states were not a serious temporal power. They just had a little portion in central Italy around Rome. Due to Alexander and his successors, and I might say that this is a critique that the religious might have of where the papacy was at that point, the church increased in power and money and was an active military force in keeping non-Italians out of Italy and keeping big Italian powers from expanding. They also suppressed Roman factual families. So he's saying the popes were using his advice of um, siding with the weaker, um, the weaker side in wars. Against the strong to keep them from growing. And that's what the papal states always did. They always backed the weaker of the two. Interesting. So they were at odds with like the, the Medici family and, and yep. others? Ah, very interesting. At least at some point. So I'm no expert on Florence. Chapter 12. The chief foundations of all states are good laws and good arms. Mercenaries and auxiliaries are useless. They will run away when danger comes. Even the good mercenaries will oppress you and your friends. Well-armed states enjoy freedom. Carthage was oppressed by its mercenaries. I think at the end of one of the Punic Wars, the Carthaginians had a revolt amongst its mercenaries. 
And then they hired more mercenaries to fight. Their to fight rebel. the old ones? Yeah. <laughs> they armed the moderate rebels. Wow. So bad. Chapter 13. Auxiliary forces, which are foreign armies used to help achieve victory, are dangerous because the prince is beholden to the foreigners after the battle. They are good forces, though, and not cowardly, unlike the mercenaries. A prince should rely on his own troops whenever possible. Chapter 14. The chief aim of the prince should be war. This is what keeps him secure and elevates him. The prince who cares about luxury will not last. One who does not know about the art of war cannot be esteemed by his soldiers, nor direct them. He must keep up with the art in action and in study. Regarding action, he must train and discipline his soldiers and know the terrain in his province. He must read military history and learn from the greats. Chapter 15. Idealists will be ruined princes, so be practical. The prince who seeks to be good all of the time will be victimized by the bad people. Avoid vices and evils which will cause your ruin with the people, but no prince can exhibit only virtues. That's an interesting point that he makes there, that they can't be totally virtuous, or else they will, they will fail. So there has to be some amount of ruthlessness there. Yeah, he made the point later to seem virtuous as much as possible, but to not actually be virtuous as much as you can get away with it. Yes. Because that... he thought virtue was weakness. That's another interesting take. It is. Some might say hot take. Busting hot takes 500 years ago. Chapter 16. Liberality or generosity in princes is dangerous. If done privately, as Christ mandates, it is no use. Even if you do it publicly you will be forced to raise taxes, and the people will resent you. Save your wealth for war. Then the people won't call you miserly anymore. Those who are striving to become princes must be liberal, but once in power must stop. The exception is if you took plunder from others. Princes must avoid being despicable or hated. Liberality will lead you to one of those two things. Chapter 17. The prince must desire to be considered merciful, but cruelty is required if he is new or wants to maintain his power. Don't be too cautious or too confident. As the prince says, quote, And here comes the question of whether it is better to be loved rather than feared. It might perhaps be answered that we should wish to be both. But since love and fear can hardly exist together, if we must choose between them, it is far safer to be feared than loved. Boom. There goes the most famous quote of the book. Which a lot of people seem to take out of context. You know, I think to get the full context of it, you have to read that whole quote. And he is saying that, you know, it's a kind of a toss up. But given the choice between the two, you, you got to pick to be feared. But it may be like a 51, 49 percent, you know, split. You know, the people I think like to frame it like, oh, he's saying you should just be feared. That's totally, obviously way better, period, full stop. But that's not necessarily the context of that quote. However, we must note that modern scholar Michael Gary Scott has pointed out that it is best to have your people, quote, be afraid of how much they love you. Wise words. Men will be loyal to you if they receive benefits from you. Dread of punishment is more reliable than bonds of love. Avoid being hated, though. Don't seize your subjects' property nor their women. Lean more towards cruelty than kindness with your soldiers. We need them to be disciplined. I agree with that one for sure. Chapter 18. There are two ways of fighting, one by law, the way of men, and one by force, the way of animals. A prince must have both natures, because the former is often insufficient. He must be like a lion and a fox. Back to the book, quote, The lion cannot protect himself from traps, and the fox cannot defend himself from wolves. One must therefore be a fox to recognize traps, and a lion to frighten the wolves, end quote. He needs to appear merciful, 
as Evan mentioned earlier, faithful, humane, sincere, and religious. But to actually be so would make him vulnerable. He needs to especially seem religious. The ends justify the means. We'll get into that later. (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 19. The prince needs to avoid being despised or hated. Don't oppress your people's property or dishonor their women. He's making that point again. It's very important. He should fear his subjects and foreign powers. He can defend from the latter with good arms and good friends. Conspiracies usually fail and will almost always fail when the people like the prince. Didn't apply to Julius Caesar, but that's okay. (laughs) Keep the nobles and people from desperation. Let others carry out unpopular things and bestow favors yourself. He, he gives a lot of Roman history examples, so if you don't know these names, you should investigate a little, do a little reading on Roman history. I think it's very interesting. Roman emperors had to deal with a third element, though, the legions and the Praetorian Guard, which often decided fates of emperors. From Marcus Aurelius to Maximinus Thrax, few emperors had good ends. Many were not liked by the military for not being greedy or cruel enough. That was Pertinax and Alexander Severus and they were killed by the troops. Many were disliked by the people for being cruel while satisfying the soldiers, i.e. Caracalla. Many were both cruel to the people and despised for their actions. Think of Commodus and Maximinus Thrax, and they were killed too. Many were despicable altogether and were quickly eliminated. Have fun reading about Elagabalus, and also Didius Julianus who literally purchased the throne, and Macrinus. Septimius Severus was both a fox and a lion, and he did everything right in order to be a new emperor for a long time. A new prince must seek inspiration from Severus, and an established prince must act like Marcus Aurelius. And one thing I'll say here is I love how much history he brings into such a short volume. Machiavelli really knew his stuff and he brings in so many great examples of what he's talking about i mean it's incredible just read his discourses on living you'll see how much he really knows he wrote wrote a huge volume about all these examples from roman history that applied to the modern day yeah incredible let's move on to chapter 20 a new prince should not disarm his subjects if they are disarmed he should arm them see i knew i'd like this guy That will make them his arms. Disarming his subjects makes a prince hated. If he acquires a new state, though, he should disarm those people. He shouldn't encourage factionalism in his subject cities because this weakens his whole realm. He shouldn't trust those who gave their city in his hands. Their motives are not aligned with yours, and they are hard to govern. Build fortresses if you distrust your people. Otherwise, fortresses are useless. Chapter 21. A prince becomes esteemed greatly with great enterprises and giving proof of prowess. King Ferdinand of Spain finished the Reconquista, attacked Africa, invaded Italy and France, all with glory and religious pretext. A prince must always take a side in conflicts. Don't remain neutral. If he is neutral, he will become the prize of the victor. If he chooses the winning side, he will have a powerful friend. If he chooses the losing side, his ally can protect him, and that ally will be loyal to someone who stuck with him even when they were losing. The prince must reward merit in those who would better the state, and also he should hold festivals periodically. More of the bread and circuses there that people love. Chapter 22. A prince must choose a good minister to represent him. Good ministers do not seek their own gain. Chapter 23. Flatterers should be shunned in royal courts. As Machiavelli says, quote, 
there is no other way to guard yourself against flattery than by making men understand that telling you the truth will not offend you, end quote. The prince should not allow people to give him unsolicited advice. He must surround himself with wise men and ask questions of them, exhibiting patience and prudence. He then must make the decisions on his own. Let me say that that quote about making people comfortable to tell you the truth. A lot of people could benefit. A lot of leaders could benefit from this. I agree. For making, because a lot of them just freak out if you have any criticisms of them. And then people aren't going to want to bring up stuff and they'll just plot behind your back. I think it's great advice he's giving. I I can imagine that that's how it is in China and in North Korea. (laughs) Like the people are deathly afraid to give any bad news to the dear leader. Chapter 24. A new prince who establishes a happy realm is doubly praised. And a hereditary prince who loses it is doubly blamed. Chapter 25. Is everything predestined? Are the events of life simply the results of fortune? No, about half of life is based on what we do, not chance. Fortune is like a river, which can be dangerous and ruinous, but when tame, it can be controlled and protected against with dikes and other means. Italy didn't build the dikes, unlike the other nations. One method does not always work because circumstances change. Boldness is often key to success. And finally, chapter 26. Italy needs to be united and expel the barbarians. Italians are superior in every way besides politics. Lorenzo de' Medici, you could be Italy's savior. We need Italian patriotism, not factional strife. That that concludes our summary of the book. Now let's give a short biography of Machiavelli. Niccolo Machiavelli was born in Florence on May 3rd of 1469, during an extremely tumultuous time in Italian history. That's about all of Italian history, but <laughs> that, that part was especially bad. Not only were the Italian city-states all at odds to varying degrees, but the French, Spanish, and the Holy Roman Empire were all vying for control of the region. It was a real mess. In 1478, while Machiavelli attended school, the Pazzi conspiracy took place, in which members of the Pazzi family attempted to undermine the Medici family's influence in Florence by assassinating Giuliano and Lorenzo Medici during Sunday Mass. Giuliano was killed, but Lorenzo escaped with only minor wounds. The Florentines later hanged the attackers and expelled the Pazzi family from the area. Lorenzo died in 1492, but was succeeded by his son Piero, who named his newborn son after his deceased father that same year. Machiavelli would dedicate the prince to the younger Lorenzo. By 1498, Machiavelli was serving as a senior diplomat for the Florentine Republic. He got married in 1501, and he worked as a high-ranking secretary until 1512 when the Medici took power getting some revenge for being expelled from Florence in 1494, and the Republic came to an end. The following year, he finished the prince, but was arrested, imprisoned, and tortured for his suspected connection to a conspiracy against the Medici. He was released and expelled from Florence a month later, and returned to his country home where he would begin writing Discourses on Livy. Watch episode 1, Anacyclosis. You won't regret it. Over the next few years, he would write many works, most notably Mandragola, the Florentine Histories, The Art of War, and my personal favorite, an unfinished poem titled Golden Ass. He lived long enough to see his history book presented to Pope Clement VII and died just one month after the sack of Rome at the hands of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, an event covered in Episode 9 of this podcast, Epic Last Stands. Go check that one out. It's a banger as well. He was buried in the Church of Santa Croce in Florence with papal privilege. Discourses on Livy and the Prince were each published in 1531 and 1532, respectively. 
That's interesting that it wouldn't be add to, added to the Forbidden Books. Uh, why would you say that? Just The print seems like a very secular book and not promoting you know, typical Christian values. We'll just put it that way. It was <laughs> yeah. it was the first of its kind to just completely divorce politics from morality. This is true. And it, it you might even say it undermines the authority of the church and authority of the established order by saying, hey, here's how you can become a prince. You know, I, I agree that if, uh, if you're going to forbid something, that, that would be a pretty good one to uh, keep out of the hands of average people or ambitious people. So let's take a quick look at the major themes. Mankind is inherently corrupt. There are few exceptions. According to Machiavelli, of mankind we may say in general, they are fickle, hypocritical, and greedy of gain. Couldn't have said it better myself. So you agree with that statement? I think he's largely right. There's obviously exceptions, uh, and I, I hope people are better. But when it comes down to it, when people get desperate, that that's what happens. I would agree with that statement. We can, a lot of people have their morals when they're, their tummy's full. Yeah, so. but a man's got to eat. Uh, another major theme is that it's not easy being king. And he gives uh, some great examples of people who did almost everything right, like Caesar uh, Borgia. Everything right up until the last minute, and then with one stroke, with one mishap, it all comes crashing down, and the empire they could have had just disappears. So it's not easy trying to claw your way to the top. There are many methods of gaining power and keeping it. But knowing which ones to use in each situation is key. You won't get very far without studying history. And if there's one person who exemplifies that, it's Machiavelli. That guy knew history like the back of his hand and imparted a lot of his knowledge gained from that to others. So I think you should take a page out of his book. If you want to go, go someplace, learn your history and follow the path that others have cut. Greater men have already carved the path to success. All you have to do is follow them. That's why you read your history. Exactly. And you read your books on strategy, too. Those are the experts. So you want to read what they have to say about each, their individual arts and sciences. Yes. What is it you said in, in one of the other episodes before you, uh, or if you want to learn like karate, you go to a karate master. If you want to learn how to cut hair, you go to a hairdresser. You don't go to just some Joe Schmo. You said something along those lines, I think. And that's a, that's a pretty good rule of thumb. Like a lot of people profess to be experts on a subject. But in reality, you need to go to the people who know actually what they're talking about and walk the walk, not just talk the talk. And it might have been, I know what it was, it was Apology and Crito, that episode you talked about that. I think it was in relation to Socrates saying, go to the people who know, you know, don't just go to some average everyday guy who's like, oh, I'm very wise. Well, yeah, okay, sure. Fortune plays a big role, uh, but the competent tend to come out on top. The prince states, and I quote, God is not willing to do everything and thus take away our free will and that share of glory which belongs to us, unquote. It's a good way to put it. Make your decisions based on reason, not the stupid morals or emotions. Yeah, those stupid morals. Who needs them? Because the ends justify the means. That may be uh, one of the biggest takeaways there. Let's move on to our assessments. Some scholars have said that the prince is a work of satire. If it's satire, it's darn good satire. So good, you don't even know it's satire. And if that's the case, can we really call it that? It's a good question. Uh, episode number 375 of the Art of Manliness podcast featured a guest who argued that the prince was a satire of monarchism and the Catholic Church. Machiavelli was perhaps trying to create disgust in the reader when he described what a despot had to do to remain in power. It makes one think. 
Maybe we shouldn't have that system. Maybe republicanism is the way to virtue and stability. It's a fascinating concept, although we didn't fully agree with that conclusion in episode 1. Check it out. I've read a good chunk of Machiavelli's lesser-known discourses on Livy, which I enjoyed, and the Machiavelli of that book differs drastically from the one in The Prince. He gives a lot of advice to republics and discourses, and the advice is not to be savage, but to uphold virtue. Additionally, Machiavelli's life was one of republican advocacy. It seems odd that he would write this one book, which was in discord with the rest of his life. Very strange. Maybe Machiavelli was playing 4D chess, and we're just playing checkers. I don't know. Or maybe he was actually a sociopath who wrote whatever he needed to in order to survive another day. A man's gotta eat. <laughs> this work has obviously been a major influence since its publication. The very fact that almost everybody knows what Machiavellian means proves this. But does he deserve to have this derogatory term assigned to his namesake? If you believe that the work is satire, then it's obviously unfair. Even if you think he was writing a serious manual for despotism, the term is still a little bit unfair. Before reading The Prince, you probably imagine that Machiavelli would tell the reader to become the next Hitler, with harems, and all your subjects shaking upon your arrival. However, he has surprising advice like, don't steal people's women, and don't take people's property most of the time, and make sure your people are armed. Sure, he has harsh advice such as killing off the entire family of deposed monarchs, but the book is about how to stay in power, not how to exploit your people and enrich yourself. And that is an excellent point there. All A lot of this, you have to understand, is directed towards enemies, directed towards the people you are either trying to fight or conquer, or, you know, or both. So he's not advocating you do a lot of this stuff to your own people. In fact, that undoes you. He says many times, you know, you anger enough nobles, you anger enough powerful people, you anger the people who outnumber you you're going to have trouble, so you have to treat them well. You know, being a prince is about maybe hostility in foreign affairs and and discipline and trying to keep the peace in domestic affairs. Very important distinction there. And uh, personally, I think the term Machiavellian is certainly fitting, but it doesn't carry a negative connotation to me personally. He was the first thinker to really lay out a step-by-step -step guide for succeeding in politics uh, by any and all means. So, of course, anything or anyone that demonstrated political ambition would run the risk of being labeled as such. Being Machiavellian is only bad if you're trying to deceive people into thinking you are just a kind-hearted, red-blooded everyman with small-town values, a wife, 2.5 kids, and a dog who goes to church every Sunday and just wants the best for people. But if you're honest about who you are, a political animal, then being Machiavellian is actually a compliment. Why? Dan, you're looking positively Machiavellian today. Aw, oh, gee, thanks. That's how I hope to be greeted by you every single day you come over to record, Evan. You better say, Dan, you're looking mighty Machiavellian. I don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs> by the way, political animal is often misunderstood. Okay. He, by political animal, he means an animal that lives in a polis or in a community. It's not like a man who does anything he needs to like yeah, like a like a top. savage, a dog, yeah. yeah. Uh, but that was, was that Aristotle or was that Aristotle. Plato? Yeah. Now our takeaways. The Prince was a groundbreaking book that has changed the way we analyze politics. Machiavelli was a complicated man, and we may never know what his real opinions were. Read The Prince, but Discourses on Livy is underrated and deserves your time too. Now how about some lingering questions? Here's one for you. What would Machiavelli think of our modern forms of government? What would he think of the American Revolution and the Constitution? Evan, what do you think? 
I think he advocated republicanism in his life. Through his life, he was a bigger proponent of republics than monarchies. Uh, so Machiavelli would be happy that we established a republic. And what is Machiavelli like for rulers? Stability. So maybe not for from a personal standpoint of one person staying in t- at, at the top forever. But certainly there's a lot of stability in our system with our written law that has uh, thus far pretty much made us a stable country. Yeah, mostly. <laughs> yeah. I think he would like that and like the spirit of a well-armed people too. I think uh, yes. we're very well-armed people, although that is not something our rulers often encourage and it's not their arms. Yeah, it's exactly. He wanted the people's arms to be the, the prince's arms, but it seems like in America, at least more and more these days, they're two separate things, the prince's arms and then the people's arms at odds. So, yeah, but I, I do agree that in theory, like if he just read the Constitution, he would say, hey, this is pretty good. This is this is probably going to be successful. And, you know, it has been thus far. Next, would he have still dedicated the work to Lorenzo de' Medici if he'd known what would happen afterward? I don't know. I think maybe even after the imprisoning and the torturing and all that, I think he still respected him. Like, you got to do what you got to do, man. You're trying to make sure you don't get uh, uh, conspired against. How dare you treat me like I told you to treat your <laughs> exactly. enemy? Exactly. Yeah, he was just he was just reading the playbook. He said, "Hey, man, you told me to do this to you. <laughs> I just gotta make sure I vet you. You know, make sure you're not trying to kill me." Uh, so yeah, I mean, and he had the opportunity, I guess, to take that part out in the future, right? So when the when the Medici family came to to power in fifteen what was it fifteen twelve, fifteen thirteen, and uh, kind of ousted him from his position, he hadn't published the work yet so he could have just scrapped that introductory part so obviously he still intended for it to be there after that was already done to him right so i think he didn't have any uh ill will towards him he knew he was just doing what he had to do and respected him for it and that's pretty it's pretty manly right there i agree lastly have there been any counterexamples in the last say 500 years since uh the work was published that would disprove some of his ideas about taking or keeping political power as I said, I think people demand more than they used to, not just to be left alone, but they want additional benefits on top of that. They expect something from the state. I agree. I think the idea of like a self-perpetuating state was not possible in his time, but is now maybe possible. I mean, who knows the who knows what will become of the American federal government? Who knows what will become of the new world order? But we live in a very scary near dystopia where a surveillance state and like a deep state quote-unquote a swamp can exist in perpetuity and it can exist like side by side with you know robber baron big tech moguls so is that a system that it can just be sustained forever almost like a orwellian type big brother I, i don't know but i don't think he could have ever conceived of that even being possible remotely because there was just so much infighting in his time. Modern rulers have more uh, ability to control their people and to communicate effectively to their people through propaganda or real communication. That kind of hurts his case of why a prince should be merciful to his people. There's more ability to abuse them. And the people are are generally weaker, I think, in in today's world. Much easier to control. I think something that he, he really didn't account for, and it wasn't really around in his time, but bureaucracy... That thing that just allows the status quo to continue, even if you get a new president, most things won't change. Most of it will be run by the bureaucracy. So it it lends stability to the system, but also less power 
to the people to change things. I agree. Now, I'll add one question that's not in our notes, but just came to me. If Machiavelli had studied Chinese antiquity, I don't know how much he did. But if he did, do you think he would have maybe seen what we're talking about here? Because the Chinese throughout history have maintained an incredible amount of consistency in their bureaucracy. They're one of the oldest countries around. Like They've almost gone unchanged for 4,000 years. So maybe if he had studied them, he would have said, hmm, if these conditions are present, maybe a state outside of China could exist in that same way. You know, like singular culture, singular traditions, single ethnicity, religion, you name it, um, could have all remained the same. And China is kind of an outlier in that. But I think if the conditions were right, he might have said, maybe if you replicated those, you could have a perpetual state. Right. And he was basing his opinions off of, uh, I guess, modern European history and Roman history. That's really all he knew. Even if he would have just, well, I wonder how much he knew about the Byzantine Empire, which was going on. I mean, well, actually, it had just dissolved by the time he was born. But, you know, it was it had been around pretty recently in his time. And it was a thousand years old at that and point. And it was a thousand. It was the continuation of the Roman Empire. I wonder how much he knew about that because they literally had princes. It wasn't any of this republicanism stuff. Yeah, they didn't need that garbage. Well, they inherited the, the I guess, the empire system mm-hmm. and made it even stronger with Eastern influences. But I don't know. It's, it's worth asking because they had a very centralized bureaucracy that provided a lot of stability. But also monarchs were overthrown all the time, mostly in coups. Yes. But sometimes in riots in Constantinople. I don't know. I'm sure uh, a lot of the book, I think, still holds... There are some things that probably have changed. And as he says, when if you can't adapt, when circumstances change, then you're going to lose your grip. Of course. I think he's right on that. Anything else? I think that is all, sir. That's all for today's show. Please make sure to like, subscribe, and leave your comments. Join us again next time for even more ancient wisdom.